members of our church right now who are preparing for weddings, and one of the things on their to-do list, one of the many things, is the task of creating the guest list. Now, those of you who have already been married know firsthand that can be a difficult task. Most of us are unable to invite everyone that we could think to invite, and so the question becomes, well, who do we cross off the list? At least that's how I would think you do. You start with everyone, then you start crossing people off, right? But, but who do you cross off? Who makes the list? For example, do you cross off your parents, friends from the neighborhood you grew up in who babysat you when you were little? Or do you cross off your mother's second cousin, Bertha, who never travels without her cats? Like, who, who do you cross off between the two? These are not easy decisions for an engaged couple to make. You just can't invite everybody to your wedding. At least most can't. Most can't. One of the recurring images in the Bible for the age to come is the image of a great wedding feast. Isaiah 25 says, The Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. The Lord spoke to the prophet Joel, You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied. In that day the mountains shall drip with wine. In the Gospel of John, we see that Jesus performed his first miracle at a wedding feast, turning vats of water into fine wine as a a symbol of the the age to come. And the book of Revelation tells us about the marriage supper of the Lamb, and the new Jerusalem comes down prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Scripture tells us that God is preparing a great wedding feast for his son. And when it comes to the guest list, guess what? God does not have that problem. He doesn't need to think about how much the food will cost or how big the venue is or any of that. God doesn't need to put a limit on the guest list. He invites all people to the celebration. But the surprising reality of the scriptures is this. Many choose not to come. God invites all people to the wedding feast, but many choose not to come. Get open your Bibles to Matthew 22. We are in our series through Matthew called Following the Fulfillment This morning's passage is Matthew 22, verses 1 through 14. Matthew 22, verses 1 through 14. Here's where we've been. Jesus has entered Jerusalem to the praises of the crowds. They've come to believe that he's the promised Messiah. They've they've come to believe that this is the son of David and that he is about to enter Jerusalem, conquer their enemies, and establish the kingdom. On the other hand, the religious leaders are not joining in those praises. The religious leaders have set themselves in opposition to Jesus. To them, he's a threat to their status and authority, and they want to arrest him. Jesus knows all of this. He knows that the crowds misunderstand him. He knows the religious leaders are against him. And he knows that in a few days, they're going to unite together in calling for his crucifixion. And he'll fulfill his father's mission to give his life as a ransom for many. With all of this going on, Jesus gives the parable of the wedding feast. Listen to the word of God this morning, Matthew 22, verses 1 through 14. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I've prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he sent to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those who invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. 
And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Parable begins in verse 2. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. This is what the kingdom is like, and this is what the coming of the kingdom is like. The story revolves around the central event of a wedding feast. And, you know, weddings are synonymous with celebration in all cultures, but they were especially significant in ancient Israel. A wedding didn't just last for an evening like they do in our day. A typical wedding would last for several days. These were extended times of celebrating. And one of the hallmarks of the wedding celebration was the feast. The wedding host would prepare the best food and the best wine for all of his guests. And let's understand at the outset that this wedding feast is no ordinary wedding feast. This wedding feast is being put on by a king. So imagine being invited to the wedding of a presidential family member, the wedding of a famous celebrity in our day. If weddings were celebrations centered around a feast, this would be the celebration of celebrations. This would be the feast of feasts that's going on in this parable. The story continues in verse 3. The king sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Now Jesus' parables always have shock value built into them, and this one has plenty of it, as we'll see. The scene assumes that the wedding feast had been announced ahead of time to the people who lived in the king's city. To put in modern terms, they've already sent to save the dates months in advance. Now the time for the feast has come, and the servants go out to say, the wedding feast is ready. Come on, come on in. But what do they do? They refuse to come. They reject the invitation of the king. You know, for many years in our country, it's been customary for the president to invite championship teams from major college sports to visit the White House. But a few years back, for the first time ever, teams decided, teams decided to start declining those invitations. They wouldn't come. Now, why was that? Why wouldn't they come? Was, was it because they thought it would be boring, not into White Houses? No, it was because of who was in office. It was an act of protest against the one who invited them. And that's the way that we should understand the actions of these citizens here. They don't refuse to come because they don't enjoy weddings. They refuse to come because they don't honor their king. Well, when sports teams spurned the president in our country, he shot right back at them. But that's not the way the king in this parable is. Though his invitation was spurned and his son was dishonored, this king is patient and gracious, and he sends more servants. And this time, he makes sure that they know how amazing this feast is going to be. Verses 4 and 5. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, see, I've prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered. Everything's ready. Come to the wedding feast. He says, You don't know what you're missing. This wedding feast is going to be spectacular. But look at how the townspeople respond in verse 6. They paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. 
again, stunningly, they reject the invitation. But now we see two groups emerging in this large group of rejectors. One group simply says, we have better things to do. They choose their work over the wedding feast. But the rebelliousness of the second group comes out here as they actually take the servants, treat them in a shameful way, and then when they're done mistreating them, they kill them. Now this might seem like an extreme response to us as we read the parable, but we need to remember that this reveals their attitude toward their king. They hate this king. They find a way to express their hatred of this king by killing those who represent him. And this time the king's patience and grace runs out. Verse 7 tells us what he does. The king was angry and he sent troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. That would be tempting again to read this as an abuse of power. But keep in mind what the townspeople's actions represent. One commentator describes it this way. The setting of this parable as the marriage feast for the king's son makes refusal to attend tantamount to high treason. The intended guest's violence was a known method of signaling their insurrection and refusal to show allegiance to their sovereign. So by spurning the king's invitation, murdering his servants, the people of this town have declared independence from this king, declared their enmity toward this king, and the king responds with the full force of his authoritative anger. That's not all the king does, though. There's still a wedding feast that's been prepared. He still desires to honor his son, and so he gives his servants new instructions in verses 8 and 9. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. They're sent outside of the city. This is the realm of the poor. This is the realm of those who are traveling by. This is the realm in Jewish life of those who are unclean, those who are outcasts. And the king says, invite them all. Anybody you find, tell them to come. Bring them in. And verse 10 tells us the result. Those servants went out into the roads, gathered all whom they found, both bad and good, so the wedding hall was filled with guests. No one outside the city even thinks about refusing the invitation. To them, this is the opportunity of a lifetime. The wedding hall is filled with guests, not the kind of guests that you might expect at a royal wedding, but guests who are truly grateful to have been invited, except for one of them. The parable takes another surprising turn in verses 11 and 12. When the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And the man was speechless. As the king walks through the wedding hall greeting his guests, he stumbles upon a man who's not dressed for the occasion. Now it's unclear exactly what the cultural norms would have been in this occasion. Some historians believe that the king was someone that provided the wedding garments to the guests. So for the man to not be wearing one would be an intentional act of refusing that provision. Others believe that he simply failed to adequately prepare for the occasion. Probably the best modern equivalent would be if a man was getting married and one of his groomsmen came in street clothes instead of the suit he was supposed to wear. That's not just an oversight, right? That's, that's inexcusable. That says something. And so the king's response effectively places this unprepared guest in the same category as the trees in his townspeople. He comes under the king's authoritative anger. Verse 13, then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Notice at the close of the parable, the parable world gives way to the spiritual reality it signifies. 
this man who found himself in the wedding hall without the proper attire. He seems at the end to be cast into hell itself, outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's how it ends. That's, that's the parable that Jesus gives to the religious leaders, gives to the crowds who are hailing him as the Messiah, gives to his disciples. Let's consider a few questions to help us understand what it means. First, who do the main characters represent? In parables, there's always a, a work as you're studying it to, to not over-interpret every detail, but to see that, that there are main characters and main elements that stand for something. So we want to give ourselves to that work. And you can see, uh, we put up here today a visual representation on the screen of who these main characters are. So first we have the king and his son. The, the, the king is, 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 is the one that we see in action. He's throwing, throwing a feast for his son. His servants represent him, and, and they go out as his ambassadors. And then we have the townspeople who refuse to come to the wedding. And then we have the outsiders who come. And then in that group of outsiders, there's this unprepared guest, the singular guest who's not prepared for the feast. So it's not too difficult to identify these characters based on the context. So we can look at, put at the next part of this. The king and his son represent God and his son, Jesus Christ. God throwing a wedding feast for his son. God honoring his son, Jesus Christ. His servants represent all those who speak for God. Old Testament prophets, John the Baptist, the 12 disciples, ultimately any who herald God's good news in the world are represented by his servants. When asked for the two groups of people, the townspeople clearly represent the religious leaders of Israel, but we can extend that category to signify all who reject God's call to repentance and faith. And the outsiders, on the other hand, immediately represent the prostitutes, the tax collectors, the lame and the blind, all the outcasts, all the outsiders of Israel. But again, we can, we can see that within that group that there's really a category of those who repent, those who respond to the invitation. And then the guest who wasn't dressed for the occasion, he represents this category of people that's in Matthew, false followers, those who believe they belong to him, but they actually do not. And so with that representation in front of us, now we can ask the more important question, what does this parable teach? And Jesus says something at the conclusion of the parable to help us answer this question. Look at verse 14. For many are called, but few are chosen. For many are called, but few are chosen. This statement is like the interpretive key that Jesus gives us to understand the meaning of the parable, to unlock the meaning of the parable. Many are called, but few are chosen. And so with that key statement in mind, what does this parable teach us? This morning I want to give you four truths from this parable, four truths about the kingdom of God. First, God lovingly invites all people into the joy of his kingdom. God lovingly invites all people into the joy of his kingdom. This is what many are called refers to. God's loving invitation of all people into the joy of his kingdom. The parable reveals this truth both as a historical reality and a theological reality. And here, here's what I mean by that. It's a historical reality. It's a theological reality. When the parable begins... Does the king invite everyone to the wedding feast? No, at the beginning, he doesn't invite everyone right away, does he? No, he invites the people who live in the city. 
and it's only after they reject the invitation that the king extends it to the outsiders. And this captures the redemptive trajectory of history to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Within history, God chose Israel, his special people. Jesus was sent to Israel as their promised Messiah. And what did they do? They rejected him. It was only after Israel rejected Jesus and through his death and resurrection that the call to go make disciples of all nations was made explicit. Now here's the difference between this king and God. In the parable, the king didn't plan for his invitation to be rejected. And it was only after it was that he decided to invite the outsiders. But from the very moment God chose Abraham, in Genesis 12, 3, he said, In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. You see, this inclusion of the Gentiles was never God's plan B. It was always part of his plan. God lovingly invites people from every language, every corner of the earth, into the joy of his kingdom. We look back through history and see how this plan unfolded from starting with Israel and then through Jesus' death and resurrection to the point that Jesus says, go make disciples of all nations. But historically, we see that God invites all people from every tribe, every nation, into his kingdom. But it's not just a historical reality, it's also a theological reality, in that it's not just people from all places, it's all kinds of people. God doesn't just extend his invitation to the religious elite, he extends it to the religious outcasts. Not just to those who seem good, to those who are bad. By the time the parable fully unfolds, there's no one in the king's country who's not been summoned to this feast. And in the same way, God invites all people, no matter who they are, no matter what they look like, no matter what they've done, God invites all people into the joy of his kingdom. Church, we must understand this morning how God does this. He sends his servants. He sends his servants. And who are his servants? Well, we are his servants. We are the ones who receive the call, extend the invitation. God sends us out with the instructions, go to the main roads, invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. The servants in this parable are fully obedient to that instruction. Those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. Church, this morning I want to ask, are we obedient servants? Are you an obedient servant as Jesus called you to go invite as many as you can find? Are you taking the good news of the kingdom to as many people as you can find? Are you extending God's invitation to all people, to those near and far, to those good and bad? This is Christ's instruction to us. Go to as many people as you can and invite them to the feast. So the first application this morning, extend the invitation. As servants of Christ, as servants of God our King, let's extend the invitation to as many as we can. That God has thrown a great wedding feast. He's calling people into the joy of his kingdom. He's extending that invitation through you and through me. So first, God lovingly invites all people into the joy of his kingdom. Second truth that we see, those who reject God's invitation will be held accountable. Those who reject God's invitation will be held accountable. The two most shocking elements of the parable are these. First, that anybody would reject the invitation to the king's wedding feast. And second, the terrible fate of those who do. Both signify this truth, that God will judge those who reject his call. God will judge those who reject his call into his kingdom. Let's think a little bit more about how the rejection of the townspeople is described 
the large group of rejectors, of those in the town who do not come, we saw are made up of two types of people. There's a group that merely ignores it and goes about their business, and then there's a group who turns violent and, and attacks and kills the king's servants. Though clearly the actions of the second group are more wicked than the actions of the first group, both groups represent the same fundamental reality, is that we all live as enemies of God. We all live as enemies of God. For some people, this enmity is just outright. It's hostile. It's, it's, it's an open, rebellious disposition. But for many, this enmity takes the form of apathy. This enmity takes the form of just hearing the good news of the kingdom and not caring. And just walking away and not responding and just going about your life. That's enmity too. That's treasonous as well. Someone might say, what's the big deal? Why does it matter if we care? And here's why. Revelation 4.11 reminds us, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. This matters because God is the creator king of the universe, and he alone is worthy of all worship. Whether it looks like opposition or apathy on the outside, to withhold that worship that God is worthy of reveals that we are rebellious at heart. Whatever form it might take on the outside, we all are rebellious creatures at heart who are refusing to give glory to our creator king. And if the king's response in this parable seems harsh to us, it's only because we've not understood the true extent of his worth and the true depth of our sin. If this seems like an overreaction, then then we're, we're not understanding the reality of our sin, the reality of God's glory, and the reality that we are his creatures. God will punish those who spurn him. God will reject those who reject his son. Whoever hears the invitation, come to the wedding feast and refuses to come, will face the fullness of the righteous wrath of God. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so I call you this morning, receive the invitation. Receive the invitation. It comes to each one of us, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Don't be like the townspeople who ignore the invitation. Don't be apathetic to the reality that the God who created you is inviting you into the joy of eternal life in his kingdom. Don't be apathetic to that. Hear that. Respond to that. Don't be like the townspeople who are hostile to the king's servants. Turn away from that hostility this morning. Turn away from your commitment to your sin and yourself. Hear the loving and gracious words of the king. Everything's ready. Everything's been prepared. Come to the wedding feast. Listen, everything is ready because Jesus Christ came 2,000 years ago and he laid down his life as a sacrifice for sin. He bore the judgment of God that we all deserve. He rose again from the dead. Everything's ready. Because the Son of God died on the cross to save us from our sins. Now he stands in heaven to receive all who trust in him. Everything's ready. There's nothing more to do except to receive the invitation, repent of your sins, and trust in Jesus Christ alone. Everything's ready. Receive the invitation that God gives through Christ. God lovingly invites all people into the joy of his kingdom, but those who reject that invitation will be held accountable. Third truth we see, those who come must be ready. Those who come must be ready. Those who come must be prepared. You know, the parable seems to wrap up very nicely at the end of verse 10. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. That's how we want stories to end, isn't it? But Jesus doesn't end it there. 
he has one final warning to give to those who have received the call of the kingdom. We must be ready. The man without his wedding garment represents a false follower of Jesus. He's like the people in Matthew 7 who will say to Jesus on that day of judgment, Lord, Lord, and then hear in response, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. He represents those who think they belong to the kingdom, who appear to belong to the kingdom, but upon closer examination, they do not belong to the kingdom. He wasn't ready for the feast, and because of that, he received the same judgment as those who rejected the king in the first place. Now the question we have to answer is this, what does the wedding garment point us to? He didn't have his wedding garment, he wasn't in proper attire. What does that mean for us? Well, it could represent the righteousness of Christ. Scripture teaches that because we've all sinned and fallen short of God's glory, of God's righteous requirement, what we need is Christ's righteousness to be imputed to us. That is credited to our account. We need to stand before God in someone else's righteousness. And that righteousness is the perfect righteousness of Jesus that he gives to all who have faith in him. This could be what the wedding garment refers to. This could be an example of someone that's never trusted in Christ and therefore he wasn't clothed with the righteousness of Christ. The second option is that the wedding garment could refer to the righteous fruit that we're supposed to bear as true disciples of Jesus. And this fits with what we saw last week, that it's only those who bear the fruit of the kingdom that will inherit the kingdom. The evidence that someone's a follower of Jesus is that they bear the fruit of repentance in their lives. On the day of judgment, those who receive the gift of Christ's perfect righteousness will also be those who have borne the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus. And so this could be what the wedding garment means. It says the man claimed to follow Christ, but he never bore the fruit of following Christ. Well, which is it? What does the wedding garment refer to? And here's the thing. It's not either or. It's both and. Being clothed with the imputed righteousness of Jesus is inseparable from bearing the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus. Listen, if we think, if we think that we're going to be accepted by God because of Christ's righteousness, but we have no fruit in our lives, then like the guests at the wedding, we'll find ourselves speechless on that day. We'll be thrown into the outer darkness. But if we think that we're going to be accepted because of our righteous deeds apart from the imputed righteousness of Christ, then we will also face that righteous judgment. If we're going to be ready for the day of Christ's return, ready for the day of judgment, then we must be trusting in the righteousness of Jesus alone, and we must bear the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus alone. We're ready by trusting in him and by bearing the fruit that comes through him. So I call you this morning, get ready for the feast. Be ready, be prepared. Examine yourself this morning. Are you trusting in Jesus alone for your salvation? Are you clothed in his imputed righteousness through faith? And does your life give evidence of that? Are you bearing the fruit of righteousness that comes through his spirit who lives in you? When Christ returns and the day of judgment comes, we must be ready for the feast. God lovingly invites all people into the joy of his kingdom. Those who reject the invitation will be held accountable, and those who come must be ready. At least the final truths today, verse four, or point four, those who come do so because God chose them by grace. Those who come do so because God chose them by grace. Many are called, but few are chosen. 
Now, if you step back and think about the parable, this statement is surprising. Based on what we see in the parable, here's what we might expect Jesus to say. Many are called, but few respond. Many are called, but few come. Right? Within the story of the parable itself, we don't see anything to indicate that this king was choosing who would come. He's simply issuing the invitation, and some reject it, and some receive it. Some don't come, and some do. And yet at the end, Jesus says, here's what it all means. Many are called, but few are chosen. He's inviting us to reflect on what it means if we've come. What has happened if we are someone who came? Though the king in the story doesn't choose who ultimately attends the wedding feast, the God of the Bible does. We've already seen this in Matthew a few times. Let me remind you of a few of these verses. Matthew 11, 25 and 26, Jesus praises the Father's gracious choice to hide and reveal truth. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Matthew 13, Jesus told the disciples, to you it's been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it's not been given. And then Matthew 16, Jesus responds to Peter's confession that he's the Christ by telling him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who's in heaven. We've seen this in Matthew, that God reveals truth to those he chooses and he hides truth from others. Here's what Jesus is emphasizing by saying, few are chosen. He's not denying the reality that in real life, in real time, we must respond to God's call into his kingdom. He's not denying that we must come, that we must repent, that we must believe. He's not denying that a decision must be made to receive the invitation or not. He's not denying any of that. But for any who do receive the invitation, for any who do come, Jesus wants us to understand that there was a decisive work of God in our hearts prior to any decision that we made. God chose us not based on anything we had ever done or ever would do, good or bad, insider or outsider. God chose us based entirely on his grace. Listen, if we understand our salvation through the lens of many are called but few come, if we think many are called but few respond, then here's what will happen. We'll be thankful God invited us. We'll be especially thankful that he made a way for us to come through Jesus Christ. But we will always know that at the end of the day, we are the ones who came. We're the ones who responded. We're the ones who received the invitation. And in that, we will always be able to boast over those who remained unrepentant. We will always be able to say that we made the better decision. But if we understand our salvation the way Jesus describes it, many are called, but few are chosen. And we won't only thank God for inviting us to the feast. We will thank him for moving in our hearts to want to come. We won't just thank Jesus for making a way into the kingdom. We'll thank him for delivering us into the kingdom. At the end of the day, we will always know that if God hadn't chosen us, we never would have come. If God hadn't chosen us, we would have been the apathetic, we would have been the rebellious, we would have been the unprepared, except that God chose us by his grace. And in that, we can always boast in the Lord as the root cause of our salvation. We can always say, by grace I have been saved. And so I call you this morning, finally, to celebrate God's grace to you. We were sinful, 
we were poor, we were undeserving outcasts, and God has brought us into the wedding feast of his beloved son. We were apathetic enemies of our creator, Cain, and God has brought us into the eternal joy of his kingdom. This morning, let's join our voices together as we praise his glorious grace.